0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is Charles Lane, columnist for the Washington Post. Welcome, one and all. All right, when we last gathered, um, we had some. Well, Bill in particular had some criticisms of uh, of the president elect's choices for the cabinet. Um, And so I am going to turn to you first, uh, Bill Galston, and ask how you think Biden is doing this week. Do do you have any uh, desire to revise and extend your comments from last week or, or double down?
1: (sighs) I was afraid you'd ask me that (laughs)
0: question.
1: Uh, Look uh, at this point, Uh, to quote our soon-to-be former president, it is what it is. Uh, You know, there is an unfortunate aura around the selection process, which is uh, more prominent than I thought it would be, although perhaps I should have anticipated, you know, an aura that the president-elect is scrambling to fulfill the demands of different groups, one by one. Uh, perhaps that's inevitable, uh, but I do think <clears throat> that it reflects uh, something about the the disparate coalition uh, that uh, that the president-elect stitched together in order to win the election. Uh, perhaps it was inevitable. Uh, that it would take on this transactional cast. And I am not inclined to be critical of the competence of of individual people who have been selected. Uh, But uh, I am, uh, I will confess, not thrilled by the narrative within which these individual selections seem to be embedded. How much of a difference that will make in the long term, I don't know. Uh, My my fear is uh, that this kind of transactional behavior will continue once the administration gets underway, and that will make a difficult job of governing in these circumstances even more difficult. But beyond that, I really don't want to extend my remarks.
0: Linda, um, do you get the sense that um, you know, that there's something kind of slapdash about this. I mean, there have been some great appointments. There have been some wonderfully competent people. I think Janet Yellen met with uh, universal acclaim as treasury secretary and Tony Blinken at state, you know, as these are, these are good appointments. Um, the um, gal who's going to be at the UN something Thompson, I can't remember her full name, but she seems really good. Um, on the other hand, um, you do get a sense, don't you, that they're just sort of like s- choosing people for, p- but without much regard for which post they're going into. You know, he wanted Susan Rice and he didn't want to put her in a position where she would need Senate confirmation. So he made her domestic policy advisor, even though her whole career has been in foreign policy. Um, and and they, exactly. they had time, right? They had lots of time to think about who they were going to. She, oh who he had lots of time anyway. What, what do you, what's your impression?
2: Well, my impression is that number one, that we saw the first string of appointments, which were financial and um, foreign policy appointments. And they, I think everybody applauded as really you know pretty first rate appointments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things that tells me is that those are the things that Joe Biden Biden cares about and is most experienced in foreign policy has always been something that he had great interest in, that he has great depth of knowledge in. And of course, because of the experience uh, coming in, in 2009, during the middle of a economic crisis, that's clearly another area. And obviously we're in another uh, economic uh, crisis uh, as we speak. So, I think he had given a great deal more thought to those appointments. part of the problem though Mona and you and I have discussed this in the past is that when you start having to satisfy constituencies and in certain you know cases, this is true of any administration, you have to pick people based on who your supporters were, what they represented. Mm-hmm. But he's going, I think, really overboard in trying to satisfy sort of the uh, checking the boxes on various appointments that they meet uh, this defined group of uh, ethnically and racially diverse. Uh, now we have Pete Buttigieg, you know, the first openly gay uh, man to be uh, nominated to a cabinet post. Um, and so I think that's part of the problem. I mean, Pete Buttigieg, I. I think it's great that he's getting an appointment. Why transportation? I don't know. Um, It seems to me there might have been something uh, more apt uh, for him to choose. One of the things I'm most worried about, I will tell you, is that two of the appointments that are coming up, or actually three, there's Department of Labor, Department of Education, and AG. And particularly in the Department of Education, the people that are being talked about now, one is a former uh, Howard University dean, uh, Leslie Fenwick. Uh, She's a real ideologue, and she has been opposed to every effort in recent years to try to uh, introduce a modicum of uh, reform into the education system to give poor parents the opportunity to send their kids to different kinds of schools. And so I think that um, that is very worrisome. And if he's doing this, picking people based on race, ethnicity, and you know what uh, constituency do they satisfy, he's going to get himself into trouble.
0: Damon, you had some tart words on Twitter this week about the the discussion of Buttigieg, not necessarily about Buttigieg himself. Um, do you um, do, do you get the sense that that he's just being, you know, offered this to uh, burnish his resume? I think you said something along those lines. <laughs>
3: I have to be honest, Mona. I do not remember tweeting that. It's entirely possible I did, and it's already kind of been, you know, lost in the cyber blur of the past. Oh, okay. Um, in general, I, um, I I I don't have a lot of objections to Buttigieg being, uh, you know, transportation secretary. I don't frankly think he has any portfolio of expertise that makes him a natural for any cabinet pick. I mean, there is no Department of mid-sized City Municipal Government or something like this. <laughs> or linguistics.
0: Um, or, yeah, exactly.
3: Like, linguistic Felicity. Uh, Norwegian. Uh, I, I, I don't quite know. Now, if he is, Yeah, he clearly, he dropped out of the race in the primaries at the perfect time to give Biden a big boost he's you know this is as old as democratic politics small d democratic he's going to get rewarded in some way if it's going to be a cabinet pick i think uh transportation is is as both absurd or natural as any other i don't think frankly that for a kind of relatively low-key cabinet position like transportation it matters that much it actually might be a good place for us a kind of civic-spirited-minded guy who's smart to kind of learn how to do, you know, mega management of, of thousands of employees and get up to snuff on the policy issues involved and maybe do some good and be able to then transition maybe halfway through the administration to a little bit more high-profile job. So I, I don't have a huge... Um, problem with that. I'm more worried a little bit about some of what Linda was talking about with the Department of Education. In general, my main concern is that I think it is better for Democrats if they take the foot off the gas of the culture war. And and what I fear is a little of what we saw in the second uh, term of Obama, where uh, the, the administration sort of decided that the place in the administration where they would kind of throw red meat to the base would be on social issues. And so the administration went hard left on several culture war issues and then sort of kept on doing what it was doing in economic policy and foreign policy. I would I would consider it a, a shame if Biden went that same path. By sort of allowing HHS and education and those are the cabinet positions that are kind of culture war lightning rods to give them to left wing ideologues, I think would create problems now maybe, maybe putting left wing ideologues in any cabinet position would be bad but um, that there is a kind of there is a history of that. Uh, under Obama and uh that makes me nervous.
0: Yeah, but- no that that's that's an excellent point and he has already put Javier Becerra at HHS and he's and he's a culture warrior there's no doubt about it. Um Right. Yeah. So um yeah, okay. Um so Chuck um we're we're hearing that they're very close to a stimulus or relief bill. That uh, they're going to come to an agreement. They say about a nine hundred billion dollar um, plan uh, that would, you know, have something. The both sides will have had to give up something. Um, first of all, what what's your sense? Uh, I, this is a two parter. First, uh, first is what's your sense of why they were able to get there? Now, um, one one headline that caught my eye was. Um, that uh, McConnell told his caucus, Kelly and David are getting hammered, he said. That would be Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, the Senator, uh, Senators of Georgia, obviously. Um, so what do you think is motivating this this sudden agreement after such a long period without? And then I have a follow-up.
4: Well, first of all, thanks for uh, having me on this great podcast for the first time. Um, Pleasure. Thanks and, for coming. And- and second, I guess, I guess uh, my, I don't know, is it an initiation, right, that you have to have a two-part question?
0: <laughs> From is, now, two now on, it will question. be.
4: <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think, uh, <clears throat> I think, unfortunately, because the country needs policy in this area, politics uh, have controlled the pol- uh, the process. Uh, there should have been a deal several months ago, but obviously both parties uh, were reluctant to pull the trigger before they knew who was going to win the election. And I think partly Nancy Pelosi has kind of come to the table on this now because um, she she lost a lot of leverage uh, when the, the House majority, sh- quite unexpectedly to her, shrank. Um, and her gamble that if you held out um, until after the election, get a much better deal, uh, didn't pay off. And in fact... From the Democrat, from the point of view of Democratic priorities, this is a much worse situation. Um, I think the uh, key move on the Republican side here was Mitch, Mitch McConnell's uh, willingness to, um, you know, give up on his demand that there be business uh, litigation protection. Of course, that cost the Democrats their state and local aid. Um, And you're right, there's one more election to go. It seems like we always have another election. um, But this double Senate election in Georgia probably gave both sides uh, the incentive they need to show that they're uh, capable of governing and helping out their candidates in Georgia. My sense is that maybe McConnell said that to his caucus just to frighten them. Uh, Who knows if it's really going to be all that decisive, I think. That, that one is just a pure, you know, partisan struggle down there. I don't know how many votes are actually going to turn on the stimulus thing. But certainly if you wanted to uh, get somebody like Ron Paul or Josh Hawley who might make trouble trying to get him back on side, that would be one way of scaring them.
0: Mm. Uh, I think also, well, we'll get to this in the third segment, but I think Ossoff is running ads uh, touting the fact that he needs to be sent to the Senate to get relief um, about uh, about COVID. So there is that. Um, okay. So the second, the the, the part two is this. Uh, you, you had a really interesting column a couple of weeks ago about changes in the profession of economics. People are rethinking the whole question of how much government debt is too much and what the effect of government debt is on the economy and specifically on interest rates. So can you just briefly um, summarize the old wisdom was that too much government debt crowds out private investment, right? And now people are rethinking that, right?
4: Well, um, I wrote the piece in part uh, based on a conference at the Brookings Institution and the central piece of research presented there was by Jason Furman, who had an astonishing statistic at the... He's an economist, uh, formerly of the Obama administration and now at Harvard, that, that the... Uh, I'm going to get these numbers slightly wrong, but the orders of magnitude are correct, that, that basically the federal debt as a percentage of the GDP has quadrupled in the last uh, 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 20 years. Uh, and interest rates have gone from on the 10 year bond 4.3% to uh, negative 0.1% in uh, inflation adjusted terms. So, you know, the, the, at a certain point, the um, people just had to kind of process that new reality, which is that the government is borrowing a tremendous amount of money and not crowding out private investment. To the contrary, the market seems to be signaling that they want more and more, they want to buy, investors want to buy more and more uh, U.S. debt. So in those circumstances, it makes um, uh, all this borrowing that we're doing to uh, cope with the coronavirus emergency suddenly seem not just something that can be managed, but something that's actually almost um, you can't afford not to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, this is really uh, going to change as we go forward in the next four years, going to change the entire dynamic in terms of talking about the budget, talking about priorities and spending on Capitol Hill, um, which, you know, I think you might summarize as saying the hypocrisy that Republicans used to show about caring about the budget and then cutting taxes um, is now kind of uh, what's the word? It's kind of been superseded by the plain fact that they don't even need to be hypocritical anymore. And um, on the Democratic side, this is tremendous validation to what they wanted to do anyway. So I think you put it all together and deficit politics, you know, pending the next crisis is going to be, is is not going to be a a part of the mix for the first time in a long time.
0: So this is really interesting and I think we'll repay um, a further study. But I I mean, it's interesting. I just, it makes me nervous because, uh, just because, I mean, everything you say seems to make so much sense. And yet there's a part of my brain that's going, hmm, during the run-up to the financial crisis, we kept hearing that the old rules no longer apply. (laughs) The old rules no longer apply, you know? And then eventually they came roaring back. So- there is, that, there is that concern.
4: Well, if I could just, I, I, I am just as nervous as you are. Well, <laughs> I don't know how nervous you are, but I'm pretty nervous okay. too, because it sort of feels like, you know, economists have discovered a perpetual motion machine. Right. Or like
0: a free lunch, as it were. On, on the other hand, I,
4: I, think, I think what it tells me is that the real constraint on the US government's ability to borrow is is a kind of deep institutional one that as long as our institutions and our rule of law and the you know all the things that are embodied in the full faith and credit of the US government continue to be taken for granted by the markets probably we can borrow like this but see that's just the amazing paradox to me is that we are simultaneously being told by people who have like money at risk, that America is a very stable country, and you can count on America to keep its word, and the rule of law is here to stay. And over here, you have all the things we worry about as journalists and as political scientists, which is polarization, uh, instability. And you just sort of wonder, well, at what point does all this political upheaval ever impinge on the market's perception of the U.S.'s full faith and credit. Yes,
0: That's yes in. precisely. Very well put. Bill, did you want in on this?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, this has led economists to think much harder than they have in the past about the causes of the astonishing long-term decline in interest rates. Right, We're, we're, pretty much into our third decade uh, of of a decline. Uh, (laughs) I can remember when I took out my first mortgage in the Washington, D.C. area in 1984 uh, at an interest rate of 13 and 7 eighths percent. That was for a 30 year mortgage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, those Those rates are now down almost exactly 11 percentage points. And even, even if you do the inflation correction, the real, real return on 30-year mortgages for people supplying the capital is way down. And so this has given rise to a lot of questions about well, what the heck is what the heck is going on? And economists are beginning to zero in on large structural changes in the global economy, including the aging of populations. Uh, and uh, the fact that the growth sectors of the economy require a lot less capital investment per unit of value added than was the case in the industrial era. Just take a look at where all the value is being Mm -hmm. added in the U.S. economy economy right now. Uh, And so perhaps private sector demands for capital are not going to be uh, as strong as a share of GDP as they were during the industrial era, in which case the whole crowding out phenomenon diminishes in importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many other many other structural factors that are being talked about, but this this could be a secular as opposed to cyclical change in the nature of capital formation and, and borrowing. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Having said sure. that, having said that, Mona, the reptilian portion of my brain is exactly where yours is. That uh, you know it, you know it's easy to see how you know the borrowing of money, which has been accommodated by the printing of money in many cases, uh, could easily lead to an inflationary spike once the once the depressing effects of the coronavirus have been removed uh, and. That could make people aware of the fact that this orgy of borrowing has been sustained by low interest rates, which enable individuals and governments to do it almost cost-free. And I don't think this free lunch will last forever.
4: I just want to say, Mona, first of all, Bill did a great job of uh, fleshing out my summary, making very important points. But there is a really important distinction, which is between the deficit- and the debt as such on the one hand, and budget priorities on the other. So very often, I think in the past, political debate has used the deficit as sort of a proxy for saying, I don't agree with your budget priorities, you know? And I think that's the kind of politics I think may go away. But none none of this is to suggest that it doesn't matter what government spends its money on. And in fact, right. the challenge is really going to be to use all this cheap borrowed capital efficiently and for productivity enhancing uses. And. That's uh, I think that's where the challenge is going to be.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, I, I heard an economist sum it up as saying, "Look, borrowing is neither good nor bad. Uh, b- borrowing for um, you know, for long term growth, you know, to to build roads and bridges, to invest in your own education, if it's an individual." Those are those make sense. Those 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 that kind of borrowing makes sense. You know, borrowing to buy another new car when you already have one that doesn't make sense. And uh, similarly, you know, a lot of the things that are just discretionary or just nice to haves um, in government spending are not the sorts of things you should borrow for. You know, those are things you spend a surplus on, and we haven't had one of those since the Clinton administration. Um, okay, let us turn now to um, to what's happening politically because uh, Chuck, you set this up perfectly because we're we need to talk about the state of the Republican Party and the craziness that we have seen because uh, you know it does it does impinge upon our stability as a society uh you had 126 members of the house of representatives the republican members uh signing on to this completely absurd lunatic uh uh lawsuit brought by the state of texas uh trying to throw out the votes of uh people in four states um and 17 Republican attorneys general joined him, making 18 total states uh, signed on for this. Um, So, Damon, uh, I'm going to turn to you because, uh, yes, Donald Trump has been defeated and will depart the White House, um, but the signs in the post-election weeks are that the damage to the republican party as an institution is thorough.
3: Yeah, well absolutely. I mean, it, there are two main things that I'm concerned about, both of them in the in well, one of them in the kind of medium to longer term, one of them in the short term. The the longer term one, which I've harped on on a number of our shows, uh, in recent weeks is, is the effect of, of this battle on, uh, public opinion on the right. And the fact that Trump and his enablers are creating a large cons constituency uh, among Republican voters who are living in a kind of upside down fantasy world in which Trump won the election in a landslide and the combined institutions of American democracy, along with uh, the media and the Democratic Party, colluded to deprive him of this. So it was a stolen election. Trump really won. And that, that, that obviously is very bad for the future of democracy, because it's not good if, say, a third of the country uh, lives in a fantasy world and believes that it has been uh, deprived of political power through cheating. Um, that tends to foster an outlook that will lead people to think that democracy is only worth supporting when one when one's own side wins. Uh, that's very, very bad. Um it also will short-circuit the normal process that you would expect to see, which is that when a president loses a re-election bid and leaves office, their influence diminishes, like, first of all, usually off a cliff as soon as we enter the lame duck period, and then once the president actually leaves office after going through the ceremony of Inauguration Day and sitting there as the new president is inaugurated and takes the oath, their influence on our politics wanes markedly. But if Trump can successfully persuade his side of the Republican Party to believe he never really lost, that process will never happen. Because then, in fact, he's a winner who has been wronged, just like his supporters have been wronged. So that's terrible. The other thing in the shorter term that I think we all need to be watching is what happens January 6th. Because January 6th is the kind of the next step in this you know, a lot of people, I think, are paying attention to these details of the transition process in a way that they probably hadn't before, that, you know, oh, the Electoral College vote on the 14th of December, oh, that, that's an important event, I never realized. Um, So we had that this last Monday, Biden, you know, easily sailed through, as one would expect, he won again. But on January 6th, the next stage happens, and that is when both houses of the new Congress meet. The votes are tallied. Usually then the vice president, the sitting vice president, Mike Pence, has to affirm that in fact Joe Biden is the president elect. Now, first of all, will he do that? Will Pence stand up before the world and declare that Donald Trump lost? That's an open question. Secondly, there's the question of if one senator of either party and one House member of either party raise an objection about the vote count in any state, the two houses have to go debate for two hours about whether to accept that, that state's tally, and then there's a vote. Um, how many Republicans – if assuming one in each, you know, maybe Rand Paul would be the senator who would raise such an objection in in the Senate. Um, And then there are any number of House members who might do something like this. If there is such an actual vote, I have no doubt that Biden will prevail because there are certain Republican senators who are on the record saying that, yes, Biden won. But how many, how many say Republican members in the House are going to vote, put their, their names on the record, Saying, in fact, I don't believe that Joe Biden is the legitimate incoming president of the United States. That's the next uh, thing to worry about and thing that can uh, really poison things going forward.
0: Linda, I see your hand is up, and I was coming to you anyway. I, I just, it just, you know, it strikes me that people sometimes say, well, you know, it doesn't, these things don't matter. People shrug it off. They know that all of this is just performative, that Biden really won. Uh, Nobody takes these claims of fraud seriously. I think on the contrary, (laughs) a lot of people take it seriously. And every new step, such as uh, Damon was just describing, you know, if, if, Let's say um, Pence is unwilling to pronounce before the world that uh, Biden and Harris have been duly elected. um, You know, I I guarantee you, you will have a lot of people in the right wing echo chamber saying, Pence wouldn't say it.
2: Well, if in fact that happened, I think you would have a lot of people uh, that would say that. I, by the way, don't think that Pence will play that role. Uh, He's been very quiet. You know, he's not been out there like some of the others, you know, uh, pushing these conspiracy theories. He's sort of keeping a low profile, and I think that's been good. But I will tell you, Mona, yesterday I spent a couple of hours watching the hearings, uh, in the Senate, they were only, by the way, broadcast on the Fox News channel. They weren't on CNN or MSNBC or anything else that I could see. Um, And I listened to these hearings and I listened to Rand Paul. It was a really shocking experience because they, these senators, and particularly Rand Paul, said things that either they know are untrue, or they are too lazy to have bothered to investigate it and just uh, passed on what was given to them. In by the way law, of- they
0: call that reckless disregard for truth or falsity. Yeah.
2: There you go. Yeah. Reckless disregard for truth or falsity. So what, what Ron Paul, uh, Rand Paul rather did mm-hmm. um, was to cite in Nevada a host of what he called irregularities, one of which was that 4,000, Illegal aliens voted in the election in Nevada. How did that happen? How do they know that happened? Well, apparently, um, somebody went and got, through Freedom of Information, um, names of people who had applied for driver's licenses that were not U.S. citizens, and apparently Nevada is one of those states that gives driver's licenses uh, to non-citizens. And then that person supposedly went and checked these names against the uh, voting records uh, in the state of Nevada. Well, you know, that sounded pretty ominous. So, of course, I did a little research. It took me about eh, three minutes, four minutes, um, to find out that this had, in fact, been adjudicated. Um, it had been looked at by a judge. And what the judge had said in that case was there is absolutely nothing to suggest that the names that have been pr- presented are, in fact, names that were given uh, by the motor vehicle, nor uh, has it been presented. Uh, proven that uh, they have been properly cross-referenced. And so he basically said, we're not going to accept this evidence. And he did that in a number of things. And that was one of the things that was most disturbing. Ken Starr, in uh, his testimony yesterday before Ron Ron Johnson's committee said, well, yes, you know, 50 uh, cases have been thrown out, but they've all been thrown out on technicalities. They have not had judgments of facts. You know, these are, as I say, these people are either too lazy to have bothered to look. You can read the opinions online. You can see exactly on what basis cases were determined. And several of the cases, judges determined that the case itself had no merit, that they had actually looked at the so-called evidence. You know, most of the evidence is in the form of what they are, you know, saying are affidavits. Well, affidavits are not what you give in court. What you give in court is a deposition and it, you know, it has an entirely different weight. I don't need to tell you this, you're a lawyer. Um, and they should know this. And They do
0: know, Linda, well, then
2: they're lying, and that is so deeply disturbing because what they are doing is fomenting distrust, not in whether Joe Biden won or lost the election. They are fomenting distrust in the basic bedrock institution that uh, is the basis for our democracy, and that is free and fair elections. And that is simply wrong. It's unAmerican. American um, I think it's just the worst uh, behavior that I have seen in my lifetime in politics.
0: I second that. I think of all the outrages that uh, Trump has committed uh, during the course of his public career, his his uh, pr- you know his political career. this is the most damaging. Uh, also, quick point of personal privilege. Uh, I just want to say that I am so sorry that I gave a blurb to Ken Starr for his most recent book uh, a couple of years ago i I regret it deeply, and i if I could withdraw it, I would. Okay, Chuck Lane, you want it in
4: well, <laughs> uh, i I second a lot of what's been said, but uh, in particular the mystification and dismay you express about Ken Starr, a man who at one time was considered a plausible candidate for the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, And I I don't understand why people of his stripe are lending themselves to this, because in a way they have the option. I interpret a Ron Paul much more as acting in effect out of fear of his own vote. Rand Paul. Sorry, did I say Ron? I meant Rand. Yeah. Uh, Although... He's certainly going off into the same conspiracy world as yes. his brother inhabits. Yes, um, I, I think we can't underestimate the degree to which a lot of these elected officials simply fear what will happen to them if they do not behave this way. Uh, they'll be primaried, They'll be pilloried, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, we can. I can think of two instances in our past where a presidential election ended with the losers crying fraud. Um, or or conspiracy. One, of course, is 1824, when Andrew Jackson felt that a corrupt bargain had cost him the presidency and handed it to John Quincy Adams, and then the famous 1876 election. Um, And what's remarkable about this one is two things. First of all, in those cases, there was a lot more evidence (laughs) that there actually was a fraud or a conspiracy. Uh, And second, there was no, um, uh, 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 the, the, the person doing the crying was not an incumbent president, um, which creates all this uh, uncertainty, instability, instability just associated with that. You know, don't underestimate how long this can linger. You know, it, well into the 1860s, Jacksonian Democrats were still Rehashing the 1824 election, and of course the 1876 one was rehashed for another generation after that, and so there is a kind of lingering delegitimization that can go on here. Uh, and I repeat, in the absence of even a tenth of the real basis for concern that existed in those past episodes.
0: Yeah, um, and uh, and Trump has um, has tried to delegitimize. All of the institutions uh, of our society uh, that could could stand in his way. So this is only the the latest, but it's also the most profound. The the the, the potential for being politically destabilizing um, is is the worst for undermining faith in elections. I mean, undermining faith in the press was bad. The courts, the Congress, the FBI, the CIA, all of those things that was bad, but, uh, but this one is, uh, potentially, uh, horrific. Um, Bill, did you want to, um, to get in on this or should we move on to the Georgia Senate runoff and you can discuss that?
1: That would be fine. Okay. Okay.
0: Let's go to Georgia. Um, first question to you, Bill is, um, so you write many columns analyzing polling data. Um and of course some polls are more reliable than others, and maybe political polls are the least reliable because of the distrust factor on the part of Trump supporters. But um but how confident are you in evaluating the polls which are unbelievably close um in Georgia right now?
1: Well, if you are a really close observer
0: of my scribbling
1: Mona <laughs> you would have noticed you would have noticed that I haven't done a single column on the Georgia polls. And that for a very simple reason uh, even if I thought they were correct, they would be nearly irrelevant uh, because ev- you know everybody understands that if everybody turns out as nearly everybody did in Georgia, Uh, for the presidential election, that it will be another squeaker. Mm -hmm. And the real question is the relative mobilization of these two massed armies. Uh, And I don't think anybody looking at numbers or listening to reports from a distance of thousands of miles can possibly have a feel for what's going on on the ground, which in the case of Georgia is the only thing that matters right? Uh, are, de- are Democrats as charged up as they were a month ago? Have Republicans been divided or deterred in any way by the mixed messages that, that Republican orators are sending about the legitimacy of the voting process in the state of Georgia? I mean, it's easy to pose these questions, but it's impossible for distant analysts to answer them. I mean, we can opine all we want, but our opinions are worth nothing. Uh, so we're not, we're not going to know until pretty close to election day, if not election day itself, you know, which of these competing narratives of relative mobilization is going to turn out to be closer to the truth.
0: Linda, um, I think right after the election, you, I think made noises along the lines of you hope that the Republicans held the Senate, uh, to be a check on the Democrats and, uh, uh, any potential shift to the left by the Biden administration. But I have to ask you, I mean, when you <laughs> consider the kind of campaign these people are running, Leffler and uh and Purdue, where they called upon they called for the resignation of the Georgia Secretary of State for running a fair election. Um, they neither of them has acknowledged that Biden won the election. Um you know they they uh in the case of Leffler she has cozied up to uh Marjorie Taylor Greene the 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 new represent newly minted representative from the state of Georgia who represents QAnon um can you uh can you still say you would uh, like to see them both win
2: Well, I have to tell you, uh, this is such a hard one for me because I can't stand Purdue and I can't stand Leffler. And you're absolutely right. I mean, she is unwilling even to say whether or not she'll be the senator to uh, object on January 6th if she were to win the election and be sworn in. Um, They're just unconscionable. On the other hand, Raphael Warnock is not somebody that I could support. Um, his position on the state of Israel is terrible. Um, you know, I have very strong support for the state of Israel, and that is yep. a, a voting issue for me. Um, so, you know, past what's, you know, the turmoil that's going to come. Um, I certainly, if I were a resident of the state of Georgia, I probably would vote for Ossoff, but I probably, I mean, I, not probably, I couldn't vote for, for Warnock. i probably leave it blank. I don't think I would vote for either of the other two. But in terms of what my wishes are, I think Warnock could be a very... Um, bad person to have in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Purdue and Leffler would be uh, bad in different ways, but on areas of interest to me substantively on policy, I'd probably, you know, I'd still probably rather see the Republicans re- retain control. I mean, I, I, this is painful for me to say, and I know it differentiates me from some of my other never Trump friends, <laughs> but um,
0: well, it is Warnock's views on, uh, on Israel, at least his past views, they may change. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, they, they seem, they seem, they,
2: they seem per, pretty deeply, they seem sort of um, knee jerk gut kind of yeah. uh, positions. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, he might be he might be persuaded that it's not in his interest uh to continue to maintain those views, but they are deeply troubling to me. Yeah. Damon, um early voting has started in Georgia, turnout is high.
0: Um for whatever that means, who knows. Um <clears throat> Do you um do you think the uh well, I mean, you know, one of do, what what do you get what do you sense is at stake? I mean, do you imagine that if the Democrats win both of these races, that this will mean, uh, uh, you know, well, Kelly Loeffler says it will, you know, be socialism. But of course, even if they win, they will still have the narrowest majority. It would require the vice president to break a tie. And, um, they really wouldn't be in a position to do, uh, you know, to do a Green New Deal or any of the other things that make conservatives tremble.
3: No, no, none, none of that is is going to be in the cards. No matter what happens, it wouldn't have been in the cards if the Democrats got their their wishes for the best possible night on November third, and they had say fifty three or fifty four seats. It wouldn't have happened then either, because no. that's still pretty narrow, and uh, it still would have left a series of of very, uh, very moderate Democrats in a position of a lot of power, people like Susan Collins. And, uh, and so you're, uh, you you got them, uh, you know, got Susan Collins on the right, and you've got Democrats who are equally sort of moderate to conservative, and they would have had a lot of power. And so, I mean, I would say that if the Democrats win control, of course that matters. Uh, having power uh, has all kinds of consequences that are good if you want Democrats to be governing. Uh, and if, where it will really matter is in judicial appointments. Uh, that, I think, is the mo- easily the biggest deal because it means that the Senate will be able to approve judges that Biden nominates, whereas if Biden nominates judges and McConnell is still in charge of the of the hall. Things are going to grind to a halt pretty fast. And certainly so if there's a Supreme Court opening. Um, On the other hand, I would say that um, what's interesting is just thinking in terms of the politics of the situation, if if Democrats take charge, that actually could for 2022 be good for the Republicans because then they are relieved of the responsibility for making decisions and governing. It'll give them some something to run against. Anything that happens that they don't like, they can just blame it on the left and the Democrats. And that could in the end make for a better midterm for Republicans. So it's very hard to sort of think Think through any scenario that is unambiguously great for either side, um, and especially for the Democrats, simply because it's just too narrow. Uh, to make a difference. So I would say, yes, it does make a difference if the Democrats win both seats in Georgia uh, in all kinds of smallish ways, but it's not going to blow things wide open. It's certainly, I mean, even if Biden had 60 votes, he wouldn't be passing socialism because he's not a socialist. and <laughs> He doesn't want to do that. Um, it would certainly make a difference in what they can accomplish, but what they tried to accomplish would not be that. It would be something a lot more mainstream than that.
0: Right. And, um, and even as you say, if they had had 53, 54 senators, um, they wouldn't have eliminated the filibuster because a number of those democratic senators have said they have no wish to do that and would have voted against it. So, um, uh, so Bill, did you have something to add to this? Yes, I do, Mona.
1: Uh, I think that the control of the Senate matters, for some additional reasons. Uh, first of all, if you organize the Senate, uh, that means that you, have, uh, that you control the committees. And that in turn means that you, you control the process of oversight and investigation. And you don't need to be a deep student of the Congress to know that administrations can be hamstrung and harassed. Uh, by the aggressive use of the oversight oversight process. Secondly, uh, if you have even 51 votes in the Senate uh, and you're politically skillful, you can actually pass important legislation in the so-called reconciliation process, which does not require 60 votes. And many Many important economic measures have been passed through precisely that process. Uh, so, uh, you know, whatever the long-term ambiguities of democratic control of the Senate, I guarantee you, uh, the president-elect uh, would much prefer uh, 50, 50 plus one votes in the Senate to only forty-eight Democrats.
0: Not even a close call. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but um, I guess what I was responding to was the idea that's out there, and it's certainly in some of these ads, um, you know, that the, that the Republicans are running, which suggests that, uh, that you know, that, that as usual, they're saying, you know, this is doomsday if the Democrats win the majority Um But um, that's just that's just for fundraising purposes. (laughs)
4: Yeah,
1: they they must they must know how preposterous. I don't believe I don't believe that people who do politics for a living, as many of the admeisters do, uh, are under any illusions about what the real stakes are.
0: Right. Um, But, Chuck, speaking of money, um, there's a vast fortune. I don't know. Billions being spent on this race. Um, and, um, it's really, uh, the, the money has come to be almost superfluous, right? Um, when there's this much attention and so forth on a race, uh, so many people coming into town, like every major Democrat and major Republicans are coming into campaign for the, for the candidates, uh, you know, are, it, should donors hold on to their cash and just say, you know, we're not getting our money's worth when we contribute
4: if money decided everything in politics, we'd be discussing the incoming Bloomberg administration. <laughs> yes, right yes. Um, so I I actually think a major lesson of this entire political year is uh, the limited effectiveness of money beyond a certain point. And so I, you know, I, President Steyer would be another example of uh, a fool and his money who were soon parted. Yep. Um, the... The uh, point you make is that, yes, in a, in a base mobilization campaign like this one in Georgia, after a certain point, these ads are superfluous and a lot of consultants and ad buyers are just pocketing a windfall. I just want to say a couple points on the issue of control of the Senate. And in a way, this circles back to what we started with, which is the cabinet. You know, in the alternative universe, the Democrats anticipated where they got 52 or 53 seats. Uh, Would Joe Biden have picked different people for the cabinet? That's a sort of a 10th planet I wonder about Mm -hmm. um, that. You know, he seems to be selecting certain people. Tom Vilsack being a good example, just because they can get confirmed. Um, Would he have been more adventuresome in his picks if he knew he had Senate control? Um, And secondly, uh, you know, on the question of uh, whether it makes a difference, whether it's 50-50 or 52-48, Um, I would just say that this is a this is a bit of a a rebuttal to our kind of, I think, assumption that the Republican Party is in deep trouble. Um, I mean, the Republican Party is in deep trouble in all the senses we're talking about. It's an intellectual mess. It's riddled with fantasy and dishonesty. And yet, electorally, it did way better than expected, except for Mm -hmm. the presidential line in this election. Uh, did well in state legislatures, did well in the one governor's race, did well and much better than expected in the House. And so you really have um, would have had a legislative standoff this year anyway because of the diminished House majority. And we are in this bizarre um, circumstance where a party that basically is is bordering on sort of, you know, I don't know what what I can say, an incoherent message um, is nevertheless in pretty good political uh, condition. And I just wanted to throw that out there because that is a really important disconnect that we're all going to have to live with. Well,
0: that is very true, and of course, it it undermines the case that's you know we were hoping to make that Trumpism is is poison uh, from the from a purely electoral point of view. The Republicans did not learn that lesson. There's no reason for them to learn that lesson. Um, and so even though the party is as corrupt and as distorted and as dishonest as you can possibly imagine in American politics, you're right. It is not, it is not electorally unsuccessful. And so, no, just,
4: yeah, excuse me, Mona, but just to, to throw this in, the Georgia race may remind Democrats that if you veer too far to the left, right, mm-hmm. you cannot even beat this new unimproved, crazy Republican party. And I think a big reason the Republicans did as well as they did was that all the things we know about the defund the police and so on and so forth. Absolutely. And
0: And by the way, that is featuring very strongly in the Georgia race. I mean, even though, um, both democratic candidates have said repeatedly that they're not for defunding the police, still the commercials are all saying that they are. And, uh, you know, that didn't, that didn't come from nowhere. There was a constituency for that in the democratic party and on the left. And, uh, and they're, you know, Republicans are wrapping it around their necks. Um, all right. Well, let us now move on to our final segment, which is something that we would like to highlight or draw attention to Bill Galston.
1: As has become our habit, uh, my wife and I were reading the newspaper this morning, uh, the newspapers, I should say, and she called over to me from her couch and said, uh, did you know that women are more reluctant to take the coronavirus maxi- uh, vaccine than men? And I said, what? Uh it's always the case that women are more likely to consult physicians, uh, to, you know, to do self-care as well as care of others. Uh, and I would have expected exactly the reverse, that you know, a, lot of, a lot of macho men, a lot of men who've been influenced by rhetoric coming out of the White House and elsewhere uh, would have been the first to decline the vaccine on the grounds that it was... You fraudulent or I don't need it, or, you know, the the whole epidemic is a hoax, et cetera, et cetera. And a very, uh, but when it was my turn to read the style section, I read the article and it was a long, very interesting analysis, you know, trying with some success to explain why women as of right now, uh, say that they will be more reluctant to take the vaccine than men. And, uh, This is something I think that uh, bears analysis and careful watching because it could turn out to be very significant on the ground.
0: Um, Did it have to do with risk aversion? Uh,
1: Actually, actually not. Uh, uh, At least that that wasn't the major explanation. Hmm put forward. Uh,
0: because there's the lots work. of data showing that women are much more risk averse than men. You know, like if you compare women and men and like what kinds of investments they're willing to, to consider women always go for safety over, uh, over greater return. And when it's, you know, there are a lot of areas of life where women go for security and men are more adventurous.
1: Uh, you know, quite, quite true. Uh, but The security argument cuts both ways in this case. Yes,
0: that's That's absolutely right. Yes, it does. It does. All right. Well, I'll have to read the article. Uh, Damon Linker. Um,
3: Yeah. Well, uh, this week, I guess the thing that I read that uh, I found most uh, stimulating and I would like to recommend is a piece in Texas Monthly titled Gladden Pappen Wants to Make Conservatism Great Again. This is uh, by Daniel Oppenheimer. It's a profile of Gladden Pappen, who's a conservative uh, founder, uh, co-founder and co-editor of American Affairs, which is a quarterly that was founded about three years ago. Um, and he represents kind of the leading edge of the intellectual uh, movement on the right to try to rethink what conservatism can and should be in the post Trump era, which is, in his view, uh, turning uh, the, the Republican Party into a big tent, big spending party that's economically populist and socially conservative. Um, I know there might be some people around this table who don't like that vision at all, but I do think there is a kind of contest going on behind the scenes in our politics right now over this question of which of the two parties will be the workers party will it be the democrats who have a long and impressive history of being exactly that but whose electoral coalition has been trending urban suburban more educated uh, more kind of knowledge economy uh, kinds of uh, areas of uh the population uh and therefore kind of upwardly mobile uh kinds of workers who are kind of in the information economy or uh the the republicans who on cultural issues are doing especially under trump a fabulous job of appealing to the non-elite segments of the population and yet on the economic side continue to be very much focused on kind of upper income tax cuts, corporate tax cuts, business. Uh, friendly moves that don't necessarily translate into a populist vision. So, Papin is a is on the Republican side, trying to make that rhetoric about being a workers' party a real thing. And uh, it's a well done profile and uh, stimulating about an important issue right now.
0: Okay, Linda Chavez.
2: Well, I got past uh, this article by a friend, another conservative, um, and he described it as the single most brilliant analysis of what Trump has done to America that he has read. It's by Jonathan Rauch, and it's What Trump Has Done to America. It's basically an analysis of the way in which um, the uh, Trumpists have essentially Reorganized what what uh, the the way we think of democracy, and he makes note of Michael Oakshot who uh, defined um, various regimes as either nomocratic. Uh, that is those who hold themselves accountable to public processes such as voting where they don't know what the outcome is and those that are teleocratic. Um, and they, uh, believe that legitimacy comes from follow, not following the rules, but rather from obtaining the desired results, the sort of, you know, Machiavellian, um, uh, uh, view that, uh, you know whatever um, results you want, the the means uh, you you adapt whatever means are necessary to get that results. Uh, anyway, I think it's a it's a good read and gives a slightly uh, more philosophical uh, analysis, and so I recommend it. What
0: publication?
2: Uh, the Atlantic. Sorry, oh, the
0: Atlantic. Okay. Well, I um, okay Charles Lane.
4: Uh, Well, my uh, recommendation or the thing that caught my eye actually was uh, an interview on Fox News Sunday last weekend between Chris Wallace and, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Dr. Monsef Slaoui, who was the um, chief on the medical side of Operation Warp Speed to develop the vaccine. And in addition to being just very impressed with his intellect and um, the way he spoke about the development of the vaccine, I was impressed by the fact that the the man who has done or led this extraordinary uh, salvation of the United States was an immigrant uh, and an Arab uh, American immigrant at that. And um, to put on on top of that, this was um, a, a, a global or at least an international effort, this development of the vaccine, that there was a German company, Uh, BioNTech, and of course Pfizer, I guess its roots are German, but this was, um, it it struck me that the extraordinary development of this vaccine in less than a year, defying all the predictions, was a huge tribute to the openness of Western civilization, its willingness, uh, the fact that the United States is a destination for brilliant uh, scientists from all over the world who want to do their research in an open society with ample resources. And uh, all by itself, strangely enough, this was President Trump's uh, operation, and its success is a, in many ways a, a refutation of the things that he stands for um, as a, in, in politics. So I was kind of a little bit inspired by that.
0: Um, I would say completely fair, although I, I would just say... Uh, I, this is very unlike me, but I don't know what's possessing me. I should say not everything Trump stands for. I mean, he is pro business anyway. So this is kind of a victory for, um, a big private industry, the, uh, pharmaceutical industry, which takes a lot of, uh, heat from some people. So anyway, (laughs) um, okay. I would like to draw attention to a piece that also appeared in the Atlantic, uh, called Facebook is a Doomsday Machine by Adrienne LaFrance. It's it's a very good provocative piece where she argues that the damage that Facebook has done to our society and to societies worldwide um, is not you know, I'm not going to overuse the cliche, but it, it's built into the architecture of the thing is her point. And um, I think if you read her piece, which really doesn't attempt to be balanced, it's kind of an attack on, on Facebook, read her piece and then also pair it with uh, the movie that is available. It's a documentary on um, Netflix called The Social Dilemma uh, which, uh, is also an sort of exploration of what social media is doing to our minds and our ability to reason and, uh, and to, to come together. Um, so those two things I think are, uh, are provocative and, uh, important for, uh, for our society going forward. And with that, I just want to add quickly that, um, It is the gift-giving time of year, and if you are so inclined, I hope you will consider giving a gift of the Bulwark Plus membership, uh, which entitles uh, people to not just these podcasts. Our podcast is, is no charge, so is Charlie's, but we have other podcasts that are only available, and they're fabulous, and they're only available to members. Um, and we have uh, three daily uh, newsletters as well as our live streams, which we've been doing on a consistent basis now for the last several weeks. We're going to do one tonight. So if you are interested, just go to the website and go to sign up for the Bulwark Plus. I uh, want to thank Charles Lane for joining us, and uh, we will be back next week as every week. Thank you all.